This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Faroze and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Kate Andrews. Well, the two of you have just been in the city for Jeremy Hunt's big reveal of the, the future for the economy at the Bloomberg headquarters. Lots of ease in his speech, <laughs> Kate. Uh, what have we learned? So we haven't had any policy updates or policy proposals from Jeremy Hunt. As you said, there are four E's. The Chancellor gave us five pledges at the start of the month. Jeremy Hunt's giving us four pillars, enterprise, education, employment, and Everywhere. Everywhere. What's that? Well, everywhere is supposed to mean that the first three will apply to everywhere in the UK. But frankly, I think it's more like 3.5 and we could have dropped the everywhere. But um, Is that the new way of seeing levelling up? I, so who, who even knows well, what Well, how could it be levelling up if it's everywhere? So. <laughs> well, that's a good point, Natasha. Um, basically, when you break it down, it is a rehash in many ways of Rishi Sunak's Mace lecture that he delivered last February, uh, where the focus was on taking down the barriers to innovation, improving the regulatory environment, and really focusing on, you know, building something like a Silicon Valley in the UK. It's something the Prime Minister is really passionate about, and today we learned that Jeremy Hunt apparently is, is very passionate about this too, and he's sort of on board with that agenda. And it's the agenda that Rishi Sunak wants to make into his legacy, almost regardless of what else happens in, during his time in Downing Street. And a lot of this plays into upskilling, lifelong education, again, going back to those E's. And I should say Jeremy Hunt also used his speech today to make a lot of Brexit freedoms. He really wanted to emphasize that this government remains committed to Brexit. But overall, as I said, no real policy agenda. He said that's to come in his budget in March, but we're expecting a really slimmed down budget in March in which we we aren't looking at new tax hikes, but really very unlikely to see any major tax cuts either. And I think the big question for Jeremy Hunt when you deliver a speech like this and you use it, he calls it the framework of future policy decisions, is when are those policy decisions coming? And how credible is it for him to talk about the ambition of moving to a lower tax, competitive tax regime, which he did, uh, when him and the Prime Minister have a record of tax hikes? Now, we know why they've done them. We don't need to rehash that on this podcast. Uh, But, you know, I think a lot of people will be saying, after listening to the speech, Great to push back on declinism, great to be optimistic about growth, even pointing out legitimate areas where it can happen. But where's the real change? And that's certainly what we didn't get in the speech today. Fraser, Jeremy Hunt doesn't have a particularly financial background. And by comparison, Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, has a very financial background. How much do you think behind the scenes this was all Rishi Sunak's speech? Well, there's a slight paradox of Jeremy Hunt. I mean, he is a former entrepreneur, so he's got he does have a business background. A lot of politicians are just basically PPE posers who don't really have much experience in the real world. But Jeremy Hunt isn't one of them. But then again, one hears reports about how he says when he became chancellor that he hadn't really quite worked out what quantitative easing was until he took the job. Uh, so you get little stories that go around that suggest he isn't actually across the economic details. So it's difficult to work out um, just uh, just what sort of chancellor he is in that regard. But it might not matter because, as you say, 
uh, Rishi Sunak calls the economic shots here. We know what um, Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor would do if he was Prime Minister. He would be cutting corporation tax um, way below what it actually is. We know this because that was the platform of his own economic agenda. So we've heard his personal plan. In the leadership campaign last year. Yeah, he wanted it closer to 15%, not 25%. we have also heard Rishi Sunak's plan in the May's lecture. The, that May's lecture, by the way, is as close as Sunak gets to a personal manifesto. He quite often refers to it in private and in public as, as I said in the May's lecture, as I said in the May's lecture. Um, as Kate points out. So this was a, a reboot of the May's lecture. So we've got Sunakism um, coming out in Jeremy Hunt's um, speech today. Uh, now this is quite important because traditionally in British history you've had the Chancellor and the Treasury as a kind of check to the power of number 10. So you had the famous Blair Brown um, kerfuffle. You would have typically throughout you know, any point in history the, Br- the British system normally does have that level of tension. It was Dominic Cummings' idea to to get rid of that, to basically have a sort of triangle of power, number 10 with the Cabinet Office and the Treasury, with a pyramid system with number 10 calling the shots. That's why Sasha Javid quit as Chancellor, because he didn't want that system. And Rishi Sunak took the job and uh, being more happy with that. It seems that uh, one... Under one of the features of a Sunak premiership is that number 10 still is calling the shots. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the economic policy does not ultimately have Sunak as the author. So we're seeing, another, again, attempt at the structure that Dominic Cummings wanted in government, where with a very powerful sort of Napoleonic number 10 calling the shots, coming up with the policy, isn't the other ministers implementing it? So I think that is the de facto uh, feature of Sunak's government. What struck me as being quite interesting about the speech though, was what he was saying about welfare reform. Now, there isn't much that they think they can do on tax cuts. Rishi Sunak is dead against that. That was the argument which was had during the summer. Liz Truss won. It seemed to be imploded. Kate's making faces at me. I'm not, I don't think Rishi Sunak is dead set against tax cuts. He was talking during that summer leadership campaign about actually quite significant cut to income tax, 1p off every year by the end of the next parliament to take us down to 16p. That was, he thinks, blown out the window once Liz Truss did what she did and the markets reacted. And now they certainly feel like they're in a very tight spot and tax cuts aren't going to be part of the immediate future. And look, that frustrates me, Fraser. I know it frustrates you too, because now you're giving me a look. I'm just saying that this idea that he's deeply opposed to tax cuts full stop, I think is not so I think that's half half the story right he he does want them and he wants them at a time when he thinks the markets aren't going to react so badly to it because as we learned you cannot borrow for unfunded tax cuts well, I would. I always divide politicians between what they say in, in an ideal world. I would like X, Y, and Z. You know, a lot of the uh, Sunak rhetoric and from Jeremy Hunt is long term. Now we all know these guys don't have long term politically. They've got less than two years left to live, and um, they're twenty points behind the Labour Party. The um, only once has any prime minister come back from being so far behind, and that was John Major in 1992. Now it's possible that Sunak pulls it out of the fire, but it's not very likely. So I tend to discard whatever they say about what a Conservative government would do in three years' time, in four years' time, because it's by no means clear to me that there will be a Conservative government. No, sure, fair enough. And tell listeners about the welfare stuff, because it's good news. It's good news that they're now acknowledging the problem. 
I'm a great believer in the Alcoholics Anonymous approach here, but the first step to a problem is to recognise the problem. Now, Boris Johnson was boasting about unemployment being the lowest for 40 years, etc., when in fact we've been keeping 5 million people on out-of-work benefits, only a small proportion of whom are categorised as being unemployed. Rishi Sunak has dropped that rather misleading claim, and Jeremy Hunt has elaborated today, saying that one of the problems is that there are 6.6 million people who are not working, an enormous and shocking waste of talent and potential he says. Of these, 1.4 million want to work, according to their surveys, but a further 5 million do not, so the trick is how to get them back to work. Now, no, nobody, no Tory minister has yet admitted, which I regard to be the most scandalous figure in public life, that 5.2 million people are being kept on out-of-work benefits in a country which is crying out for workers. But we're getting there. And what is coming down the road, I suspect, will be things like the Department for Work and Pensions taking on its own mental health advisors to work in job centres. Because a lot of people on benefits now are citing mental health problems, they can't get NHS treatment in time. You can't prioritise them, the NHS has got its own independent charter, so you can't really say, for political reasons, NHS, we want you to prioritise guys on the dole. So the Department of Work and Pensions will probably do it itself. Um, there are other reforms you can do, like um, like increasing conditionality. Now, right now, take it was a very strange system pointed out to me recently but by a government official that say um, Kate and I are married right now, that we're um, and that um, she's working fifteen hours in a restaurant. I'm not working at all, but we're both claiming universal credit now because she's working fifteen hours. That gets both her and me out of the need to go and see a work advisor every week. Now, work advisors are there for a reason. They're there to help people, to show them what they could do. It doesn't help anybody to being left without any work. And yet this help is not really being um, administered right now because one person in a, in a relationship is working just 15 hours. Now, why shouldn't that be 24 hours? Why shouldn't that be more? I mean, That's a really harmful loophole. Yeah, every, pretty much every city in this country has got a serious uh, shortage of workers right now. I spoke to a guy who owns a restaurant around the corner from here saying that he can't get people to work more than, he says, 20 hours a week because they might lose the universal credit. So I think that there are systems, ways in which the government could simply crack down on this. Now, we're not talking about people being spongers or idle. We're talking about the system which is now starting to yet again create or incubate what Bevan famously called the giant evil of idleness. When the foundation of the welfare state was on the basis that idleness itself is bad for human nature, certainly bad for people who've got mental health issues, and idleness sounds pejorative now, but at the time it was quite a good word. I mean, whether you're on furlough or whether you're unemployed, the longer you stay out of work, the harder it is for you to get back into work. What this government should be doing now is investing in, in work advisors, trying to reach out more people, trying to give universal care, which is supposed to go with universal credit. And by not making these interventions, they might be saving money in the short term, but I think they could be losing money in the in the longer term, not least to say not using the talents of people right now who could be given the help but simply are not being offered it um, because the conditionality in the welfare system never quite recovered from the pandemic. So, Kate, obviously we're all still triggered from the speech about growth, growth, growth in, in the previous mini-budget. 
How much do you think Jeremy Hunt's speech was linked to that? Does he need to oblige any of the Liz Truss loyalists in Parliament still? It's interesting because Jeremy Hunt pitched his speech today as essentially his his version of a growth agenda. And if Liz Truss has a legacy right now anyway, in the you know short term since everything happened last autumn, it is that she has got everyone talking about a growth agenda, not just within her own party, not just amongst the people who took over from her, but also within the Labour Party. I mean, people are talking about growth. Um, but you could tell from today's speech, whilst there were no particular attacks on Liz Truss's government, that Jeremy Hunt feels very strongly that what they are doing is correct, that slow, steady, stabilizing focus for the economy is is far better than what she did herself. And, you know, it remains a it remains an ongoing debate in Westminster within the Tory party. Liz Truss does have loyalists who really want to continue to push that growth agenda. And let's take that a step further. They want to vindicate it. They want to say, look, she was right, you're wrong. Um, the government is nowhere near accepting that rhetoric, though. You know, they continue to point to the fact that uh, they've had to stabilize. They believe they had to make really tough decisions, far worse than they otherwise would have had to done with would have had to do without that mini budget. And they're not backing down from that. But it's interesting, you can tell from today's speech, the the emphasis on economic growth, the emphasis on using Brexit to achieve that economic growth, um, praising British business, talking about loosening up some of those rules, all the rest of it. You know, I think it would be fair to ask, would there be that emphasis without Liz Truss? But then you could also ask, would there have been serious tax hikes uh, you know, would there have been a surge temporarily in government borrowing costs and all the rest of it if they hadn't been for Liz Trust? So you can ask that question a variety of different ways. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. And thanks for listening.